Well, welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we're going to be hearing from Pastor Nathan Hoff. Using the acrostic H-E-A-R-T, or HEART, Pastor Nathan Hoff will help us reflect on the life of David and apply the themes of hope, endurance, affections, relationships, and thanksgiving to our lives. So many, so many Christian movements are, are really fussy about all the, uh, the fences, you know? And what I love about the Lutheran um, message, you know, which is, I believe, the message of Jesus and the message of Paul at, at its core is that, that grace and the message of really David, that chesed is that the heartbeat, you know what I mean? And, and even in, when Luther would uh, draw, draw in a visual sense what his theology is, I put it right here, uh, that heartbeat with the cross right in the middle of it. You know, and it's, it's not something that is, is fussy about all the, all the uh, external fence issues, but it's something that is, they say in um, Australia, you know, you don't build fences around your ranch. Your ranch is too big. In Australia, you, you build a water source in the middle of your ranch. You won't go that far from it. And so that, that I think, is a good image of, of our theology, you know, that we have this living water source right at the heartbeat. And we dare not go that far. You know what I mean? We could deal with all the external extra issues, which aren't unimportant, but right at its core is Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, and uh, in our place. So super grateful for um, that, that opportunity. Okay, today we're going to look at Thanksgiving. So let's take, open, uh, take and open the Bible. It, it continues. Of course, I've been skipping around. It's not my normal way of teaching, actually, but uh, you know, I needed to stick with the acronym, and so I'm going to do uh, Thanksgiving at the end uh, of this. I've got two backstories I want to share today from the scriptures. One is the backstory of McCall, and one is the backstory of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's important because they, they, the backstories come together uh, in, in an important story. And so let's go, first of all, to 1 Samuel uh, 18. We'll get some backstory on Michal. Uh, this, is, this is right after, uh, you know, there's this um, experience that David had with Goliath. David's popularity is expanding. Saul struck down thousands. David's 10,000. says in 1 Samuel 18, 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Uh, and then in verse 17, Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. You see what he's thinking? And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the same time, when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mehelathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Oh, good, my daughter's fallen in love and was such a warrior and was such a poet, the wonderful lover. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Dad, this is just the nicest thing to think about your daughter, isn't it? I can use her. You know, I can use her. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, this is the father commodifying his daughter. And Saul said to David a second time, 
You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private. Say, Behold, the king is delight in you. All his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? What has he got in his mind? He's got the bride price in his mind. And he doesn't have one. How am I going to pay you know, for this situation. And the servants told, of Saul told him, and Saul said, thus you, sh- you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And they don't donate those. <laughs> What's that? You cannot. I, there, that currency is, uh, you know, sacrificial currency. And uh, so watch what happens. Again, we don't, I don't remember this from the uh, flannel graph when I was a kid, but <laughs> that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul fought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men, killed 200 of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. When Saul knew, uh, saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. He brought back 200, which is the price of two wives, I guess, which should have been an indication to Saul, this guy wants more than one wife, right? Uh, this, is, this is a... Graphic, graphic story, isn't it? I think I forgot to pray. Let me pray. God, would you open the word to us? I pray that that part that we need to hear. I love narrative because there's some hook that we get to hold on to. Like the narrative last night, the musical last night, and maybe different things touch different people. It was all good. But when I saw the fellowship of the church come around morning missionaries coming from different places. I was just moved thinking of the, with gratitude for the, the wonderful gift of your church. Lord, I thank you that biblical narrative is like this in many ways. We receive truth. It's, it's, it is truth. And yet there's some hook. There's some, there's some, there's some timely word in and amidst all the true words that are for us. And I pray that here on this last day, Lord, we could get what you've got coming to us. Um, maybe as a group, but I think certainly as uh, individuals. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Going on to chapter 19, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much uh, in David. If you uh, think about McCall watching this. It, it, it says McCall loved David. It doesn't say that David loved McCall, though uh, he demonstrated it. You know, maybe they had different love languages. Maybe hers was words and his was acts of service, foreskins, you know. Um, but there, there was a sacrificial demonstration of value, certainly, that he placed on McCall. Uh, and that is, I, I would think, you know, what did she see that attracted to her, attracted her to him in the first place? Different things would attract different people to different people, but 
so far, what we know about David is he's a warrior, he's a poet, uh, and there's something in it that, that you know, uh, there's chemistry in, in Nicole. And it must have felt, it must have felt, do you think McCall knew that she was commodity to her dad? I kind of think she did. You know, that she had a value, and frankly, it was a low value placed on her. Um, it, it, it was a, she was a, she was a piece in the, in a chess game. And, uh, she wasn't Saul's only daughter. Saul, I think, was just so neurotic uh, and fix, would just become fixated that he, it's almost like pain. You know, when, when you experience pain, there's an acute, especially like acute pain. Some of you live with it. I can't even imagine. Uh, but I, the only thing that helps me imagine it is when um, I have a toothache and I think my whole body is a tooth. You know what I mean? Because I could, I, you'd tell me I don't even have feet anymore because all I know is this one thing, you know what I mean? That is, I'm kind of like, acuteness just draws us in. And the, whatever the woundedness, whatever the insecurity in Saul, uh, it, it didn't start here. It started earlier. Remember when he became king, he's hiding behind the luggage, you know? I mean, he's just, he, he, he and oftentimes, um, this word is coming from God to Saul. You know, you're small in your own eyes. Uh, and so there's this neurotic insecurity, you know, that, that makes Saul, you know, um, do things that are so, so hurtful and harmful to uh, McCall. In, in this way, I think, I, I, I start to kind of think of life for some people on a ledger, you know, almost like an accounting ledger. And so I don't have one out here, but you just imagine this, you know, and what, it, sometimes you're running in the red and then you hopefully move over and you're running in the black, you know, and you're, you're thinking of uh, kind of what, what's owed to you or what you owe. Uh, and you, you see life. I'm convinced that McCall saw life as life on the ledger. And it actually started like... I. Someone owes me something. I mean, to have, to have a dad that, that treats me like this kind of commodity, and I think what McCall, I'm guessing, McCall loved David, and she was eventually given her, her wish, wasn't she? She was given the one that she loves. And to see what he would do for her, you know, and yet she still is commodity, uh, it's just she has a higher value, at least today, in David's eyes than she does today in her dad's eyes. Uh, he just thinks she's worth more than her dad does. In fact, he, he doubles the price. I mean, you imagine what McCall thought when her dad says, go get a hundred Philistine foreskins. And McCall says, great, Dad, I, I like this guy. You know, why, do you, why are you sending him to go do this. You've set the bar too high, Dad. I, I, do you really think I'm worth that? And behind the scenes, what we you know, realize even here is that Saul's trying to set up to, I don't want to kill David. That would make me unpopular. I'll let the Philistines do my dirty work. You know, these Philistines aren't going to donate their foreskins. They're going to, you know, fight back on David. 
And so McCall, I believe, probably is going, Dad, the, 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 the price is too high. And David comes back with a smile on his face and 200 foreskins. What do you think that did to McCall? Boom. Boom. He understands me. He knows me. He loves me. He values me. He values me. Finally, someone who values me. All, all right away, we see the honeymoon nearly screech to a halt in 1 Samuel 19 when Saul tries to kill David in another way. He's so amazed at his popularity. It says in um, 1 Samuel 19, 8, there was a war again and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow. So they fled before him and then a harmful spirit from the Lord came, from, came upon Saul as he sat in his house excuse me, with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. Saul thought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Did she know her dad? So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. She'd been watching cartoons, right? <laughs> this has inspired many scenes to come. Uh, and when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in bed, the bed that I may kill him. Then the messengers came in, and behold, the image was in the bed, the pillow of goat's hair at its head, and Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and lived at Naioth, and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Uh, I won't go, it's, it's so hard to find a good place to um, end. David's gone. You know, and Saul's, Saul, there's a lot revealed about Saul in it. I, you know, can't go into all of it, but, you know, why did you let him go? I wanted to kill my enemy. You know, and McCall could have said, why did you let me marry your enemy? I mean, what's going on here, Saul? And in, in McCall, this, this hero who's come, you know, into her life, um, and the escape. And I wonder, with the first 10 minutes of the escape, how McCall is feeling, you know? I think she's like, we're a team, you know? I'm gonna, I have this plan all worked out. I'm going to put an image and goat's hair and, you know, stuff up the pillow. So, oh, you fooled me, McCall. Uh, and a half hour goes by, and, uh, oh, wow, made it. You know, and a day goes by, I wonder when David's going to come back. I wonder when we can meet up again. I wonder what his plan is, man. If David can get 200 foreskins from a Philistine, you know, like this, I wonder, I wonder, uh, I wonder what his plan is. When's he going to come back for me? When's he going to send, when is he going to send a note, you know? A week goes by, man, he must be really battling. Oh my goodness, my hero, my warrior. 
month goes by, a year goes by. I don't even know how much time went by, but narratively, it's a long time uh, in, this, in this word. And whatever, whatever gain McCall had on the ledger that she lives on is just daily dripping out. And maybe she was, you know, in debt, or her, her dad was in debt to her, running in the red this far, but David's disappointment, I think, is moving her into a place of such despair. She just is moving deeper and deeper into, um, this world owes me. I'm owed something. I'm going to do a little backstory on the ark before we watch McCall's story and the ark story come together. We actually have to go back to before the David story starts in 1 Samuel 4. Altogether, 1 Samuel covers, so the whole 1 and 2 Samuel, 150 years. Um, and as far as the years go, how they're used, you see 40 years of Philistine oppression. You see 30 years of Samuel, the prophet's growth. You see 40 years of Saul's reign, and you see 40 years of David's reign. Uh, that's what's happening. That's what First and Second Samuel are covering. And like Eugene Peterson says, the only way to understand deeply the Jesus story is to understand the, the David story and the attending context to David's story, especially when you go back to the beginning of Samuel and see what seems like Mary's story, doesn't it? In Hannah's story and her song that sounds so much like like Mary's song. But in this time of Philistine, Philistine occupation, captivity, Philistine oppression is a better word for it, uh, they, they capture the Ark of the Covenant. They, they see that there's something about the Ark of the Covenant that brings blessing to Israel, and they say, we want one of those. And so they come and they take it. Um, you can see that in 1 Samuel 4. And then we see their experience with the ark, which is one of my favorite stories, 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, that's, the, that's their god, and they set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they, this is my favorite line, so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. This is the most wonderful thing about idols, I think. We control them, actually. And then they control us. The prophets would make fun of idols. You carve things with your own hands, and then you worship them. Okay, this is back to Genesis. This is all the way back to Genesis 3, really. The fall. That original fall was not a creation of... Uh, coarse idolatry in Adam and Eve's heart, but this, this finer kind of idolatry that you and I are also uh, more tempted by. Really, most of us are not tempted by an idolatry that we carve with our own hands. But we are tempted by an idolatry that we create. And that, 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 that original fall is, is uh, you know, not so much a fall, but an up, it's an upward fall. You know, we don't fall into naughtiness we climb into, I want to be creator. I want to be God. I want to set the rules. 
Here we see it again in Dagon. Dagon is something they made. They are the creator of Dagon. And, if, and they are in charge of it then. If poor Dagon falls on his face, you've got to fluff him up. You know what I mean? I mean, oh, let's make him you know, more severe looking. So Dagon has fallen on his face, and we'll do this with our idols too. It blows me away. I'll speak from myself, but I think it might relate to you too. When my idols fail me, I blame God. That is the height of blasphemy. When the things that I have created and my own, I have my own little fiefdom going, I have my own little kingdom going, I have my own creation going, and they disappoint me, they discourage me. Of course they do, because I'm the one that made them. And when they let me down, I go, God, why? Because I've been treating them as God. I've been treating them as God. So they, Dagon falls on his face, they fluff Dagon back up, put him back in his place, um, and it says, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen his face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This pathetic-looking idol, this pathetic-looking idol and only the trunk was left on him. That's why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Eshdod to this day. they got to tiptoe around Dagon, right? Because he's kind of a fragile idol, isn't he? My brother David, who's just getting better, you know, I, t I told you about my brother David with Down syndrome, and I had this heart, heart condition, and he, my family, and he came down from Washington to visit me, and I got a shot of blood thinner right here. I don't even know what it's called, but they told me it's kind of like rat poisoning. You know what I mean? It, it's supposed to let, what is it? It's something you guys are all right, I'm sure. And I reacted to it and I got one of the nastiest like bruises in my life. You know, it was like this and it looked like the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. You know, it changed colors all the time and it was super sensitive and um, I, and David came close to me. I said, oh, be careful, David, you know, because he was getting close, and he looked at me, and he said, my Nathan, you're quite fragile, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, little did he know that would stick. <laughs> now, whenever I'm not well, wow, Nathan, you're pretty fragile, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm worth the work. Ooh. Our idols are actually fragile. Dagon is fragile. Uh, and they, they actually require us to keep investing really a lot into them. Um, that's, a, that's a primary form probably of worship of idol is the investment of time and expectation. And the, the, the sad thing in the difficult thing is idols are now so seductive. You know, we, they're, they're, it's so nuanced that the enemy will take good things and make them, convince us that we should make them primary. You know, our, our kids, for instance, are wonderful gifts, but if they're idols, it's, uh, it's death for them and it's death for us. 
Um, hobbies are wonderful things, but if they become primary, they're, if, if they're in the place of gifts, they're wonderful, but if they're in the place of, uh, I won't know who I am anymore if this is taken away from me. All of a sudden, that's, um, that's idle. Um, they, their identity, they give identity. We receive identity from our idols. And anything that we're receiving that kind of level of import from is, um, is so dangerous because we're just building our house on, on, on sand. And so we're seeing that with the Philistines, their experience. The, Lord, the, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. I mean, we've got to stick up for our own God. They sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they brought it there, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing great panic, and he afflicted the men of that city. You get the picture of what's, what's happening. So they come up with a scenario to return the ark. Uh, it, it's in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines are thinking, we're, we're done with this. Let's, let's get rid of this thing. Look at 1 Samuel 6, 8. Take the ark of the Lord and place, put it in a box with its si- with, at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as guilt offering, and send it off. Let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beer Shemeth, that is that it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, that it happened to us by coincidence. They did this. They took two milk cows, they yoked them to the cart, shut up the calves, the, their calves at home, and put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beer Shemeth, Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border. Now the people were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark. They rejoiced when they saw it. I just love this. You know, they're like, okay, let's, let's hook up the ark to two milk cows, these two milk cows that, you know, are lowing. Um, you know, let's slap them on the rear and go that way, you know? And so as they go that way, seven months the Israelites haven't seen this ark, it's been gone, and all of a sudden they just see it coming over the hill led by two milk cows. I mean, can you imagine the image? I mean, and, it's pro- and probably the answer to prayer. Like, what? We didn't have to go steal back the ark or, you know, pay for 200 foreskins or anything for it. We just had to go farming and there it comes back to us. Talk about provision. It comes. Uh, it, let me find where it is. Mm-mm-mm. Oh yeah, Let, right at the beginning of 1 Samuel 7. The men of uh, Kiriath, Jerem, came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. They consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So Abinadab is the host now of the ark. Um, it's not in a tent or a tabernacle in the way that it used to be. But it's in someone's living room. 
uh, it, it is in Abinadab's house. And so, like, you have a coffee table in your house, they have the Ark of the Covenant in their house. You know, you, you're the, and his kids, Eliezer, and we're going to meet some of his other kids, grow up, you know, with, with the Ark of the Covenant, you know, while they're eating hummus. Um, you know, you imagine sitting, having normal family life, and the Ark of the Covenant is sitting over there. I mean, don't, don't mind. Oh, have a seat. Oh, don't put your coffee on that, you know. Um, this, is, this is unique. This is super unique. I mean, the most important, the most important, it's not symbol, it's actually tangible, I mean, but of the, of the mighty works of God, of the, of the presence of God, is sitting in someone's family room. Uh, and that is really important when you think of the, the backstory of McCall and the backstory of the ark when we get to 2 Samuel 6. Will you go with me to 2 Samuel 6? And this is when we get to talk about Thanksgiving. I title this, Why Uzzah Can't Dance. So why can't Uzzah dance and why can't McCall dance? That's my question today. Okay? 2 Samuel 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went to all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. This is a long time later. We've just skipped over to 2 Samuel 6. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. I remember reading this as a kid and went, now that just is not fair. I did, this was one of the impacting stories of me as a kid, like, are you kidding me, God? I mean, Uzzah is trying to be helpful. I thought we're supposed to be helpful, right? David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. There, now I feel better. I'm in cahoots with David. I'm kind of ticked about this too. Are you kidding me, God? You kill Uzzah because he helped the ark? I, I think I drew, I, I'm sorry I oppressed you with my artwork during this week, but I have a little artwork um, there as well. I have David in the middle. You, I put a linen ephod on him. Do you like that? We're still getting to that part of the story. But I have dead Uzzah. You see his, cro his mar crossed out our eyes there. That, that's, a, that's actually the reason Uzzah can't dance, is because he's dead. Um, but what I say is he was preoccupied with being God's manager. He was preoccupied with being God's manager. 
there's a subtle temptation that Uzzah faces. He's busy for God. He's watching out for him. He's keeping him upright. Eugene Peterson writes, he's keeping him safe from the mud and dust of the world. He's improving God's ways. He's improving God's reputation. You think of how the ark got to us the last time. But does he remember? There's a couple generations at play, isn't there? There's a couple generations, Abinadab, Eliezer, and then maybe a younger son, Uzzah, I'm not exactly sure, the family um, order there, but a significant amount of time, I believe, has gone by from the day the ark, on its own, two milk cows helped, but came over the hills and we went, oh God, are you kidding me? You're back. Thank you. Um, and what happens, I think, and I, I was trying, I've, I've tried, I don't want to read too much into it, but what I get, I get the impression that when, when the ark of God sits in your family room, you develop a, fam a familiarity that is, not, that is not the helpful kind of familiarity. You, are actu you actually are, I don't, I don't think they dusted it, but you're actually living your life kind of around, your normal life just around the Holy One of Israel. And you might even be on the resentment scale a little bit too, like, uh, oh my, you know, I mean, we've got to, and then the blessing scale too, you know, but it's like all, you're so close to it. You're so close to it. And you think what would have happened if the ark had, had tipped over and fallen down into the mud or into the dust, you know, but, but, but when you're God's manager, it's such a full-time job. And I, I think this is an important word because a lot of parents feel like they have to be God's manager. A lot of clergy kind of people feel like they got to be God's manager. A lot of Sunday school teachers feel like they got to be God's manager. I mean, God forbid you ask me why, you know, this difficult, this difficult question. And I, I think it was Spurgeon who says, you, someone talked about defending God's word. He says, that's like defending a lion. You know, it doesn't need me to defend, to defend it. And yet we, we soften and we prop up and we, you know, help. We help God's reputation because it's on hard times right now, isn't it? Let's be honest. I mean, maybe it was a little overstatement in the 70s when Time Magazine said God is dead. Oh, oh God, we have a big job as a church to do, don't we? We have to prop this thing up. We have to put a good face on God, you know, let's, he's nicer than you thought he was, you know, and he's, he, all that old fussy stuff, you know, I mean, it's, it's different than that. I mean, we've come a long ways, we've come a long ways from that, and all those projects are, are trying to prop up something we think is failing or falling. And, and the God of Israel the God who would identify himself with Abraham and his family and that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not Dagon. It is not fragile. He is not fragile like our idols are. He can, he can defend his own name. If he falls, it would be a purposeful fall. If he goes low, it would be a purposeful going low. If he washes feet, it would be a purposeful washing feet. Sinners, it would be a purposeful eating with sinners. 
when God goes tipping over down into the dust and into the mud, it's not because a mistake happened. It's intentional. The last time Israel saw the ark on a cart, it was coming from the terrified Philistines. The Philistines' gods kept falling and breaking every night and finally got all their religious guys together and said, how do we prop this thing up? And Israel was to be completely different than that. Israel's God did not need to be propped up. Israel's God was not going to become just a trunk without a head and without hands. Israel's God would defend himself. Israel's God does not need a manager. Israel's God does not need you to be his manager. The ark was in Uzzah's house and then in his responsibility for years. You imagine being familiar with the ark of God, but not knowing the God of the ark. You imagine being familiar with the ark of God, but not really knowing the God of the ark. The older son is like this, isn't he, in Luke 15. He's familiar, he's familiar with his father. He lives in his father's house. But he's got his own, he's like Adam and Eve, he's got his own little fort out in the forest. He doesn't actually live and he doesn't actually know his father. The, the older son is, thinks that it's all commodity, the relationship. The younger son is prodigal, he's wasteful, he's extravagant. The older son not. The older son is a manager. And he doesn't even know. It's, a, it's such a temptation in, in the church, in religious circles, and whatever we're in, to, to be familiar with the ark of God, but not know the God of the ark, or to live in the Father's house, but not even know the Father. It's possible. Uzzah lives on the ledger, and God owes him in his own mind. Why can't McCall dance? Someone was asking me if, if it was okay for Lutherans to dance. I said, we, we think it's okay to dance, we just can't dance. But some of you proved me wrong. You guys are amazing dancers. <laughs> yep. Why can't McCall dance? She's preoccupied with a heavy weight. Verse 16, The ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, listen to this, the daughter of Saul. That's a chilling title. If you were writing it, how would you describe her? The wife of David. But a lot has gone on between the one, the ten-minute honeymoon. You know when David left? And she was moving deeper and deeper into the red in her ledger of entitlement. I mean, it's like off the charts now with McCall. In fact, it got to a place where David was so forgetful he'd marry a few women in the meantime. He'd romance them. Abigail, Ahinoam, I forget all the names. I had it up there yesterday. But 
Um, and to the point where Saul would give his daughter Michal to another man in marriage. Forget what happened with that one, but here she is back in the city of David. And it says, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping, dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and Israel, honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it's good to see you too, honey. No, nope. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as the prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Why can't Michal dance? She's preoccupied by a heavy, heavy weight. There's a subtle temptation that McCall faces. Everyone owes her. It gives her a free pass to have whatever attitude she wants, to say whatever she wants, feel whatever she wants. It's nothing compared to what everyone has done to her. She lives on the ledger. She was Saul's bargaining chip and she was David's forgotten wife until he needed her as a bargaining chip. There's a famous French theologian named Beyonce who wrote a song called Resentment. She said, I wish I could believe you, then I'd be all right. But now everything you told me really don't apply to the way I feel inside. Loving you was easy once upon a time. But now my suspicions of you have multiplied and it's all because you lied. Chorus. I only give you a hard time because I can't go on and pretend like I haven't tried to forget this, but I'm much too full of resentment. McCall could have written it, huh? McCall could have written every Taylor Swift song she's ever written. Philosopher Robert Solomon wrote extensively on the emotion of resentment and its negative effects on those who experience, experience it. Solomon describes resentment as the means by which a person clings to their self-respect. The means by which a person clings to their self-respect. You think of McCall, forgotten. How is she going to cling to her self-respect? She's going to resent David probably in him, resent Saul. We're talking a couple, I walked through it with a couple younger people because people use the image with their kids about how when we stuff stuff, depress stuff, it'll, I said it'll come out sideways. 
And I, you know, one example I can think of is, you know, um, can have all these experiences going on in your life that aren't great and you don't really address them, but you kind of stuff them. And I talk, someone said, I kind of think that if I stuff it, you know, I have this idea that if I stuff it, it'll just kind of dissolve over time, you know, and then I can just kind of go on with life and just think, oh, good, I'm glad that's gone. I don't think it usually goes, you know, it doesn't like melt away. It's actually kind of still there. And then, you know, someone will come up to you with a reasonable thing to say. You know, I'll put it in my own context. Someone comes up to me in church and says, boy, it'd sure be nice to sing It Is Well With My Soul every once in a while. That's reasonable. It would be nice to sing It Is Well With My Soul occasionally, right? How do I hear it? You stink at worship planning. That's not what they're saying. And it's reasonable what they said. Their suggestion is a good one, right? But I respond, don't you know how much I'm doing around here? You know, and I go, they deserve that. Well, guess they didn't. It just, all the yuck just came out sideways, right? And, and that resentment, that res and there it is, it's building up in me, the resentment, and to cling to my own, to cling to my own uh, sense of, of being okay, you know, I'm okay because what? Because I'm working hard. I'm okay because I'm, I'm thinking about what people want to sing in this church. Gall darn it, you know what I mean? I, don't you think I've thought about that? You know, I, I'm, I'm, and they're calling into question in my own ears, you know, uh, value or, uh, you know, uh, ability to, you know, and so it's tapping into thing. So it, resentment is the means by which people cling to their self-respect. He wrote that it is in this moment when humanity is at its lowest ebb. Solomon, not Solomon in the Bible, Robert Solomon the philosopher. And he says resentment is most powerful when it's felt towards someone whom the individual is close to or intimate with. It's most powerful when it's someone that you're close to. Uh, John Gottman, the marriage, seven principles for making marriage work, uh, says that one of the horse, four horsemen of the apocalypse in a marriage that is uh, needing, you know, uh, emergency room um, kind of attention is the expression of disgust. And a lot of times the expression of disgust is not verbal, it's, it's visual. Uh, and the, it's, the, it's the expression of resentment. And the, it's, not, it's not that that one thing is the thing that's even usually resenting. It's a bunch of things usually that have been stuffed over time, over time, over time. And then this continual expression of disgust. And he, he says there's a difference between expressing complaint and uh, expressing, what's the other one? Contempt. Complaint is good, actually. I thought you said that you'd be home by five. You know? We, we had agreed on this. It makes me feel like you've forgotten about me when you're on appointments. That's all totally approved as far as complaint goes. Having hard conversations is good. 
um, but when there's contempt connected to it, you never remember me. You know? Uh, you always, uh, oh, you know, typical you. Uh, th this is just part of your track record. Why should I expect anything different? When contempt is connected to it, there's this indication that resentment is at play. Uh, and, and it needs to be addressed. Really, I, I say it too strongly. Because so, so, it's so, so harmful to uh, a lively relationship uh, is, is resentment. And, and Bathsheba's seething with it, isn't she? She's seething with resentment. David, David comes home with raisin cakes. You know, he's been to the bakery and he comes home with, he says, to bless his household. Like all the other people went home to bless their households. And the first thing she says, wow, David. Narcotics Anonymous says, do we really want to be rid of our resentments, our anger, our fear? Many of us cling to our fears, our doubts, our self-loathing or hatred because there's a certain distorted security in familiar pain. There's a certain distorted security in familiar pain. That's why Jesus, I think, asks people, what do you want me to do for you? Well, it's kind of evident if you ask a blind person what they want, right? Duh. I want to see. Well, not duh. Because sometimes familiar pain is the only comfort and the only consistent thing I've got in my life. Do I really want to be free from the thing that is harming me, hurting me? There's a certain distorted, this Narcotics Anonymous, distorted security and familiar pain seems safer to embrace what we know than to let go of it for the fear of unknown. And there's a lifelessness connected to it. And we see this with Michal, this, this closedness then, moving forward. The, this inability to give life in, in her own experience. Inability to receive life. It's too risky, isn't it? I don't blame Michal, actually. I mean, it's too risky to have these two primary men in her life, the daughter of Saul and the wife of David, just continually disappoint her, hurt her, offend her. McCall can't dance because she's living on the ledger. I said with Uza, he's her man, he's God's manager, but with McCall it's meant. When you're God's, when you're God's manager, I put on the little picture I drew, it's a full-time job. And when you live in resentment, it's a full-time job. There's really no time for dancing. I mean, there's no time for all that kind of, all that kind of fr frivolous stuff. Uzzah had a God who was lame. Michal had a God to blame. Uzzah had a God who needed his help. Michal had a God who she thought owed her. Uzzah did not have a God you could trust. McCall did not have a God she thought she could trust. 
David is different. And you know David is not anywhere close to perfect. But David had a God who was not tame. David had a God who owed him nothing. I'd be curious what you think about that question. Do you have a God who owes you? Or do you have a God who owes you nothing? In your own imagination, I'm saying, in your own understanding of God. Because I talk to people all the time when I'm getting ready for a funeral of people that are nominally or mostly not connected to the church who in their own imagination has a God who owes them something because they were in the Rotary Club or because they, you know, were better than Stalin or Hitler. It's amazing how low our standards go in judging how we think God owes us. You know? Her, her resentment is not, is not rooted in, in unreality. And most of ours aren't. I mean, I think most of our resentments are rooted in reality. You know, we're not crazy for resenting people that have hurt us. And then we're not probably crazy for connecting it to God in some ways, because, like, he could have stopped it, or, I mean, he could have written a different story, or he could have, you know, all this stuff. So I don't think the issue is, myself, I don't think the issue is that she didn't have good reason to resent him. Um, I think she did. I think it, it, it's in the category of, you know, the end, the yuck happening in the world and the enemy saying, how can I make this worse? And part of the way it's made worse is living in that, on that ledger, I mean, and recognizing that there is another way to live, you know what I mean? I, and I think that's what most people don't realize. I think most people real, think that I can only live on the ledger in what people owe me or don't owe me or what God owes me or doesn't owe me, and they think this is the only address they can live in is the ledger address. And, you know, the thing is, David didn't live on that ledger. David, David was removed from that ledger. God took him off of that ledger, I mean, when he forgave his sins. And the, the prodigal son was taken off of that ledger. And the woman caught in adultery was taken off of that ledger. And all of a sudden, they're given a new address. I mean, there's a new place that they, that they live. And it, it doesn't excuse anything that that they did i mean it and it doesn't it doesn't um you know it doesn't turn them into the hero we wish we they'd always been or it doesn't you know it it just gives them a new address there's if you live on the ledger there's actually no way else to to live with other people except for commodity you know to to see what do they bring or what do they take away or where does this put me on the on the sliding scale david david had a god who was not tame god in david's mind god owed him nothing he could handle anything david had a god he could get angry with do you think uzzah could get angry with god and express it i don't think he could myself i I think when you got the Ark of the Covenant as your coffee table and, you know, you've got to always be managing it, you can't really be that honest. 
but, but David, when God strikes down Uzzah, it says David got ticked off with God. You know, he got mad at God. There was such a, there's such a moxie, you know what I mean? A chutzpah that David had in his relationship with God. I mean, marching and eating the bread of the presence, for instance, and other times as well. That, that uh, David had a God that he could even get angry with. David had a God that he could dance wildly for. David had a God you could trust. So why can David dance? He's preoccupied with the glory of God. David, Peter, Eugene Peter said, David was never in a position to take care of God. God wasn't a sheep that David tended. He was a shepherd. He wasn't tame. The, the, last, the last section really moving into the life of thanksgiving um, is the if, if you're if you're on if you're on the ledger, Thanksgiving is just really hard unless everything's going well, you know, in your life. But the giving thanks in all circumstances is impossible if you live if you're living on on the ledger. Uh, David David didn't live on the ledger. David David when he had lost his wives and he had lost his uh, sons and daughters, and when he had lost the will of his people and the love of his people strengthened himself in the Lord. So this, this he, he practiced, you know, the heart of God in the midst of desolation. Um, and I do love the, um, in, in, the prayer, in the prayer cycle, um, my rhythms have included um, the, in, in the morning I use uh, the, the trip method that's taught here, which obviously has a core value of thanksgiving, doesn't it? This is, uh, this is biblical. This is also um, from uh, Luther's, um, he, his, he had a barber, Peter the barber. And while he's cutting his hair, he says, how's a normal guy like me supposed to pray? I'm not a monk, I'm not a priest, you know. How's a normal barber supposed to pray? Luther went home and wrote him an 18-page letter. Luther is the best pastor. I mean, I'm thinking I could, I'd text message, you know what I mean, something. But uh, 18 pages, you know, Luther to his barber on how to pray. And uh, the, you can get it on Google for free. It's, it's available extensively. It's, it, it's, many people see it as a spiritual classic. It's a really, really great uh, writing. And at the core of it is to hear the word of God first. Let the word of God be the first word, like we use the, the Moravian text for in our context, and then understand it, you know, kind of ask the, what does this mean of this? What is it, what is it saying to me? Um, and then he says, then give thanks. Turn it into some kind of thanksgiving. Now, there's, a, I, I believe, a complementary spirituality, even though sometimes contradicting theology at times in um, Ignatius Loyola, who had a wonderful practice for the end of the day, the examen, which is a, a recognition in your day of times of uh, consolation and times of desolation, times when you, uh, you sensed, felt, thought you were walking, in a sense, in, in a way of consolation, you're walking with the Spirit, and times when you felt desolation, when you felt, I think I took a turn there. And what I love is it, it I, I love the process I love about the examen is it's, Really, the, it's investigating the dynamics of repentance, I feel like. 
because I was, I was going this way and I, I sensed I was, you know, walking in, in step with the Spirit, but something changed. And what, what changed? And helping get to the bottom of that change of moving from uh, consolation to desolation in your life um, is an important dynamic. My attitude changed. My, um, my, I, I started to believe the whisper of the enemy. That changed. I uh, realized I had repressed a lot of things and I exploded at my you know, kids or uh, whatever that, that change is, is important to recognize for the sake of repentance, for reorientation, metanoia, and, uh, and a, you know, a breaking with those things that drew us away from uh, not that the Spirit left us as if He was, you know, frustrated with us, but turned our orientation away from the face of our Savior. And the, the um, experience in the examen is then to give thanks for the, episode, the episodes of your day, the events of your day. Again, so the, the, these, two, these two practices, in the morning, the um, praying God's Word, and then in some, even in a short way, in the evening, reflecting on the day in the presence of Jesus, especially from a repentance kind of orientation where you're turning again and giving yourself to the God who will keep you through the hours of the night are helpful, but they both at their core are thanksgiving um, oriented uh, practices. And we could say, I couldn't say that much more because I'm not an expert on the brain, but there's so much isn't there right now on brain chemistry and the importance of Thanksgiving and how it actually rewires our our brain and the way we think. Gratitude is absolutely life changing, and so there's there's uh, as we see David's life, it it kind of unfolds for us then in Second Samuel seven, right after this issue with Michal and David. And uh, we see that David, you know, it says, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I left up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the peoples of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of house, I took you from the pasture from following sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I'll make you, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, you a house. I will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. It's interesting in the first two verses, they, they don't inquire of the Lord at all. 
David says, I got a great idea. I'm living in a mansion. God's living in a tent. I think we need to make this right. Sounds great, doesn't it? Who disagrees with that? You know, the prophet goes, that makes all the sense in the world. Go do what's in your heart. The Lord is with you. God has an appointment with Nathan when he gets home from his little non-God-involved, you know, meeting and says, do you think I have something to say to it? And if it was written in red, you know, the letters of God written in red here, it'd all be red in this next section. And I want you to notice every shall and will. I will, I will, I shall, I will, I shall, I will. Spurgeon says, I decided to live in the shalls and the wills of God. This is a house, actually. I mean, spiritually speaking, this is the house that God builds. Is the house of promise. This is the house that I will build for you. The house of Christ. Yeah. You think of it too, Bethlehem. You know? The city of David. Who's, who, who has a house there? There's no room. God makes a room, doesn't he? God tabernacles in our presence. God makes his presence known right here, but it's typically, fleshly, humanity's way with God is to initiate and serve and presume and do, come up with good ideas. The most famous preacher in the country right now, who I will leave nameless, is famous for saying, when you do everything you can do, that's when God will step in and do what you can't do. No. It's not true. It's not true. God will do it. That's it. Period. God will do it. I will. I shall. God's way with humanity is He is the builder. He is the one who says. He is the one who speaks. Henry Blackaby has a good line. I think don't just do something. Stand there. <laughs> it's an experiencing God. Um... So where have you experienced entitlement belief? Where do you find it hard to give thanks? As far as kindling the affection of thanksgiving, I, there's so many places, but I love Philippians 4. Maybe it would be a, if, if thanksgiving was low on your list, or if you think I, the resentment thing, I got that. The disgust thing, I'm full of it for so-and-so or whatever. Um, just telling yourself to not be disgusted probably won't help. And so I think, how do we kindle the affection of thanksgiving? And Philippians 4, 6 is powerful. You imagine Paul writing this from prison. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is that great will. He will do it. You said it, Lord. You said it, Lord. All right. I have cleanup to do. I've said so much, and I just pray, Lord, everything right will remain in the hearts and ears of your people, and I pray every bit of fodder all that I've said that doesn't amount to something would pass away and be forgotten by everybody in this room. One clarification I want to say is that in the pain cycle that I showed you the picture of the pain cycle, 
the word medication is not, by that I don't, I, I want to clarify that I'm not against medication, I'm no medication. Um, the word uh, medication I'm using there is a, gen a general word. I don't just mean if your doctor has, has prescribed something for you to take that you should try to not take it anymore, okay? Can you tell anybody who's not here that I've clarified that? I'm pro-prescribed medication under the influence of a physician. Um, God, I think it's one of the great, great healing tools that God can provide. I meant it in the in the general sense of there's there's things, and sometimes it's sometimes it is drugs, of course, but that we go to as um, a level of escape that isn't under prescription, but it's uh, uh, you know kind of self self prescribed, isn't it? And so if I'm looking for my my if I'm looking for literally my primary identity from joy, it's I think it's too much of a burden for joy, or if she's looking for it for me, it's too much. But if I'm secure, for instance, if McCall is secure in her identity as a beloved daughter, it changes the ledger. It totally changes the ledger. She can say, I wouldn't do it that way, Dave, but you're, you're Dave and I'm McCall, you know? I mean, we're very different people. So I, I think that that core vocation, uh, you know, that, that belief vocation, that baptismal vocation, is at the heartbeat and can be at the heartbeat of our other, I think it also could be in our workplace. I mean, do all things for the glory of God. And so all of a sudden, you're not just, you're not just you know, hitting the clock. You know, you're, you're doing your, your daily work for the glory of God. And I don't mean that you have to turn it into something that it's not necessarily. I mean, I think it will be a witness to make good shoes or to, you know, uh, make good things in the factory or to whatever the, or to give good counsel, whatever your vocation is, but it'll have a different energy, a different kind of, a, a different kind of um, quality because it is for the glory of God. I'll say like for the activist, we talked about the, act, the activist vocation, that person who feels could be similar to like the prophetic vocation. Someone who looks at something in society and says, no, this is out of line with God's kingdom values. And I, I have found that the most sustaining thing for the actual activist, because activist work is really um, exhausting, you know, I mean, because there's always a problem to fix, you know what I mean? And there's all, there's, there, it, you're never quite there. You're, because you're working with, you know, governmental systems and you're working with people who have different ideas of what, would look good, you're always compromising, you know what I mean, in this world. And so for the activist, compromise is like a dirty word, right? And so you just either, if you don't have a, if you don't have a source of fuel, if you have no engine for your activism, except your conviction, I think you run out. You know, I think you just go, I give up, I give up, I'm going to just watch Netflix, you know. Activist is motivated by their... I'm a beloved son, I'm a beloved daughter. I think it actually, Tim Keller makes this point too about actually, you want your activism actually to last? You want it to keep on going? Let it come from your, your, your identity that God has given to you and that in, in, in this world. So I think that's the only, I think activism is actually more sustainable by that core vocation of beloved son, beloved daughter than any other's. Does that get at? Okay. Yeah. 
what if the things we're talking about with kids, about our primary thing is, you know, oftentimes just to make them happy. And what if we like, maybe I should do something different, but my kid's 17. Is it too late? Yes. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I am not a parenting expert. I'm just looking at Tanzania. I'm going, there's something going on here. You know what I mean? And um, my, my, so I think some of the most powerful times I feel like in parenting have been when I've been humble and when I've asked my kids for forgiveness. And not just generally, but for specific things. You know, and I, I'm human in front of my kids. You know, I'm, I'm vulnerable in front of my kids. And I, I can think of times, I don't know if they're long, philosoph you know, like a, a total change of philosophy when they turn 14 or something, but like for a season when something's not been right, you know, when, I, when I, the Word of God kind of reveals it to me, to me, and I will say, guys, I have done some things I thought would be helpful, but I think it's actually been hurt, hurtful, and I don't want to hurt you. I think I've, I've, you know, for instance, on this issue of like making our kids happy instead of um, helping them live into that, knowing the law and its limits and knowing the good news, you know, and its limitless you know, grace for us. Um, you could see saying something like, you know, I, I, I thought my job was to make you happy, but the thing is, if, if it's my job to make you happy, there's a day you're going to leave our house and I might not come with you, you know? And so, um, and the other option is that you stay at our house forever I really want to change that trajectory, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, you know, maybe open up conversation with the kid because if they're old enough, you know what I mean. They that their own self awareness. I think there you could come into maybe a new practice, a new way in some ways. I don't know. I I think it's a really good question. I think it's hard. It's hard to. It's easier to start things when kids are just little and they've just always known it. A certain way, you know, and I think that with blessing, I try to teach dads and moms how to bless their kids, and it's awkward when they're teenagers that first time, you know. That's what I love about Mont Carmel. It's not as awkward if Jonathan tells you to do it, you know. It really is actually helpful. We do this in the church too, you know, where we we say we're going to do something now, you know what I mean? And maybe you've never done it before, but we're just obeying what the pastor is telling us to do. You know, now try this before your kids go to bed tonight. You know, so now you're kind of following through. But in lieu of that, if you don't have that, it's awkward just to start it. But the second night, it's just a little less awkward. And the third night, it's not awkward anymore. You know, so you can, you can practice your way into a, new, into a new way of being, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then we'll set up some scheme to make yeah. our kid not turn out like Michael over my dead body, you know. <laughs> right. You know, and at what that point kind of are you, yeah. you, and there, you have these certain times where you'll stop and say, you know, am I actually really working against myself by trying to mm -hmm. give him dance lessons, yeah. so to speak. Right. Yeah. And then you contrast that with God's going to do this, God's going to do this, and you yeah. think, is he? Right. When? Soon? 
by the time our car trip is done, you know. Yeah. The thing, the thing is, like, you know, we have this we have this teaching of a of a triangle where you can live in this drama triangle where there's a, a victim and a rescuer and a perpetrator, and it's really it's really tempting to always be living in this. And if David lived in that, I think he couldn't have danced either. If he knew his wife is at home and looking at him out the window and she can't dance, how can he dance if she can't dance? You know what I mean? But that's not David. He's not living, he's not living in that. I kind of feel like as parents, we, we dance. And we invite our kids to join us. You know, we invite our, invite our spouse to join us, but sometimes they won't. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we stop dancing. I think if we stop dancing when our Kids won't join us in the dance, the gospel dance, you know, the freedom dance. Do we talk, understand what we're talking about? Dancing is not really dancing exactly. Thank God, because I'm an awful dancer. But, uh, but in, that, in that freedom, liberty dance that, that Christ sets us free to dance in, if we stop dancing because our kids won't join us, our kids understand this is, this is contingent. Their, their freedom is not really freedom. And so we continue to live in the gospel. We continue to live in security. You know, we continue to live in liberty. And it's hard because the, mo- the, gr- the closest thing to our heart is that our kids would join us in the dance. I really think. Yeah. Dancing and become the manager of the dance, we might become resentful that we can't dance. It's a whole cycle. The whole thing. The whole Oof. thing. Oof. Boom. <laughs> Drop the mic, but don't really. Yeah. Oh, Mary. I just wanted to say in the movie that we watched, um, Pete Doctor's main point at the end is. Tell about you. You 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 know the. <laughs> I'm his aunt. <laughs> so the writer out. of Inside Out. Yeah, and, and She's the aunt of the writer of Inside Out. Mary is. Yeah. So. Isn't when that he, cool? When he got up to accept his. Um, Academy Award, his little thing that he said was for parents. He said, help your children find a way to express themselves, whether it's in writing, drawing, or some way to help them, like for the main character in the, in the movie. Yeah. She, she thought she had to be joyful all the time. Yeah. And it wasn't until finally sadness came in. And, yeah. you know, so that was his little like one paragraph message that he said yeah. to the entire TV audience and yeah. everything. You know, be sure your child, you know, is affirmed in something they want to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then he said whether it's writing or, you know, yeah. creating like he does. So I thought yeah. that was such an important statement to make to parents. That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. I love the talent show. I mean, I love the highest highs of the talent show and the lowest lows of the talent show. And that both were... Both were welcome here and both got clapped for here. What depression tells me. That was powerful. That was super powerful. Some of the music that people wrote, I mean, right from the heart was, and this was a safe space for that, for that to happen. Sometimes we, as parents, I think we, I heard just recently, you know, I forget who it was that told us, Joy, that, that um, you know, we, we say things like, why don't you go to your room until you can be happy? <laughs> And, uh, you know, until you can, well, you know, I think it's time to go to the room if, there, if there's abuse, you know, if you're harassing, you know, your brother, you're damaging us in some way. But 
I can deal with unhappiness. I mean, really, we can. We should be able to deal with unhappiness. That's not wrong to be unhappy, right? So, yeah, this stuff is good. Okay, and they're trying to get my so, attention, I think, to... Yeah. Hello? Okay. So, um, with our daughter, who's 14, I don't know if a lot of other people struggle with them just wanting to be lazy, and they just want to... They're out there. Oh, she's not out there. She's, she's a high school girl. Okay, hypothetically, if you had a child that didn't want to do much... And, um, okay, I'll, I'll be very general for anyone. Yeah. Um, I went to the Romans and Christians yeah. experience meeting, and it was more expressed as an experience than yeah. a game. Yeah. And maybe some kids don't want to do it because they don't want to be outside or run yeah. or be around bugs or just not be on their electronics. Yeah. So, you know, as a parent, you kind of want your child to have these experiences. Yeah. And so you might force your child to do it. <laughs> is, is that bad parenting? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Jonathan, do you have an answer to close us off? You're, you've been a wonderful parent. Yeah, force them to do it. Yeah, there's some. There's a, there's a time. I, well, I, I, a lot of this vocational stuff, I think, comes down, you know, there's some principles at work, but a lot of it is spirit-led discernment. And guess what, guys? We're going to get it wrong because we're not the spirit, and we're the ones that have sometimes translation problems with understanding the spirit. So we got to get off the ledger ourselves, right, and go, oh, botch that one up. I mean, I, you know, uh, or, yeah, that was right. I mean, so, I, I, that's a good question. Thank you all for this opportunity and well to you to you thank you all god we thank you for the chance we've had to dive into the life of david i pray that it's opened up uh in some ways the amazing grace of jesus in ways maybe that are deeper than we even realize but also an awareness of our own of awareness of our own life, God, before you. And uh, we thank you for this week. In Jesus' name, amen.